The scripture today is from Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Uh Yes, my name's Nick Nepper. Uh, this is my wife Ashley down here. We have two of our four kids back in uh, back in childcare today. Our other, our two big kids are with their grandparents, which feels like a vacation. I was telling uh, some friends of ours that if you have two or three kids and you feel like you're a busy person and like life's really hard, just have two more and then occasionally send a few of them away, and it'll feel instantly like you're on vacation. It's great. Um, no, it's wonderful to be back here with you this Sunday. Uh, I'm excited to get into the scriptures. And you all are in the Psalms right now. Is that correct? You're in the Psalms this summer. I love uh, spending time in the Psalms in the summer. There's just something about it that is like a wonderful respite from all of the, um, the busyness of our time and that we can just like sit in these biblical songs and to listen to what the Lord would have to say to us is a beautiful thing. So before uh, we hop in, do you mind if I pray quickly and then uh, we'll hop into Psalm 77. Father, we love you and we're so thankful for the gift of your son Jesus. We ask that today uh, you would be present to us by your spirit, that we would feel and know that you are here, that you enliven our minds and our hearts, that we would be aware of what it is you're communicating to us. Lord, would our... Uh, would our whole selves be made available to you today? We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. Have you ever made an attempt to not be self-centered? Have you ever tried to not think first and foremost about yourself? I think most of us somewhere in the back of our mind know that we are self-centered. 
maybe it's not like something you think about on a day-to-day basis, but then a friend of yours calls and says, can you pick me up from the airport at 6.30 p.m.? And that like alarm bell in the back of your head goes off and says, what I really wanted to do was make fajitas and watch Netflix, and I do not want to pick up my friend from the airport. Or worse yet, they ask you to watch their dog. That one is really hard too, right? And then you begin to realize, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm a little self-centered. You see, there's this insidious thing about self-centeredness. And that is that self-centeredness is our default setting, right? It's just the way we perceive the world. One of my favorite writers, a guy named David Foster Wallace, uh, in a lecture that he was, not a lecture, but in a commencement speech he was giving at a college, talks about this fact that self-centeredness is our default setting, and this is what he says. He says, here is just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to, automat- I tend to automatically be sure of. Everything in my own Im- immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realist, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic, basic self-centeredness because it is so uh, socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us. It is our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it there in front of you is there in front of you or behind you or to the left of you on your TV, on your monitor, and so on. Others, other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, real. This is not a matter of virtue. It is a matter of my choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural hardwired default setting, which is so deeply and literally self-centered, and to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. People who can adjust their natural default setting this way are often described as being well-adjusted, which I suggest to you is not an accidental term. So he goes on in this uh, commencement speech that he's giving at a university to say, to sum up this idea of self-centeredness by saying that we are all kings and queens of our own skull-sized kingdoms, which I believe to be true. But it also presents a problem, doesn't it? And we know for a fact that this self-centeredness, though it comes very natural to us, is in fact bad for us, isn't it? It doesn't comport to reality, actually. One study that I read, published by a psychological journal, found that uh, self-centeredness, like, and I don't know how they measure self-centeredness per se, but it leads to a lack of connection and an increase in loneliness, a lack of significant relationships. And I think this just makes sense on the surface, right? Here's the mental experiment you can do. Not, don't think about yourself here, but think about somebody you know in your life who, is, who you know to be self-centered. Do they have a lot of friends? Probably not. Don't say their name out loud, okay? That's not a good thing. Now, but we know that that's right. One thing that helps us to build strong relationships is others-centeredness, or what we often call empathy. 
the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and, in a way, learn what it means to be them, right? We can't see exactly what another person's experience is, but empathy goes a long ways to helping us connect with other people. Self-centeredness has this way of shutting the door to other people and to, to significant relationships. You see, uh, this kind of self-focus is a thing that also creates problems in our spiritual life as well. You see, we are always, I think, self-obsessed. And if we are self-obsessed in this way, we have this, this predisposition towards turning our faith in Jesus and our practice of religion into its own kind of self-focused, self-centered kind of circle of issues. You see, our, if our religious observance is self-centered, you can see how easy it would become to make God in our own image. You see, in general today, in our culture, our religion or spirituality of any kind is very often kind of set to the, the tune of my own well-being. There is this kind of therapeutic technique about religion, where if it's not making my life better in the way that I think it needs to be better, if I'm not becoming fitter, happier, and more productive, in the words of Radiohead, uh, it's not doing what it's supposed to do, right? It's not, it's not fulfilling me. It's not meeting my needs. It's not meeting me where I think it should meet me. If Jesus isn't doing for me what I think he should do, well then, it's just, it needs to be jettisoned, right? Because it's not, it's not, there's no therapeutic value to it. And it is this kind of self-focused, self-centered expression of faith that I think confuses us and gets us on the wrong path. You see, when our, when our own selves become the center, not only of our own lives, but also of our worship of God, well, then we get into problems. It's the late Tim Keller who said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idolized version of yourself. You see, self-centeredness has this insidious way of not only disrupting our human relationships, it also has an uncanny ability to derail our relationship with God as well. And if you pressed me, if you asked me to give you my honest opinion, I would say that most of us, for most of us, the primary way we relate to the God of the universe is in this kind of self-fulfilling, self-centered way. We believe that if I'm doing the right things or living the right life or worshiping in the right way, God needs to meet me in the way that I would like him to meet me. So, for instance, think of your average prayer time. The last time you prayed, whenever that was, I would fare to guess that for most of us, most of us, there is at least an impulse to pray almost entirely about the things in our lives that we want to have happen. That job we want to work out that relationship problem that we need to get fixed, that issue that for us becomes this like pressing, all-consuming thing, and we spend all of our time, like 95% of it, praying these what are functionally self-centered prayers, praying that God would work on our behalf. Now, what I'm not saying this morning is that God doesn't care about those situations in your life, 
but I'm saying that when we are overtly focused on it, we have very often this ability to miss what it is that God wants to do in that exact situation. And it's also very, very easy to miss the beauty and the majesty, the wonder of an experience with the God of the universe. Because here was what the other thing I will say that this kind of self-centered approach to, to God creates in us. It creates an inability to actually connect with God. Think about the way that narcissism or self-focus shuts us off from communication or communion with other people. Well, it can do the same thing with God as well. You see, most of our prayers are subtle attempts on our part to get God to do our will and not to align ourselves with his. Now, what does this have to do with the Psalms this morning? What does it have to do with Psalm 77? The Psalms, I believe, and this Psalm in particular that we heard read just a minute ago is a great example of this. And it's, it's meant as a kind of, as, a, as an aid to help us get out of our own skull-sized kingdoms. You see, the Psalms read correctly become this tool to align our hearts properly in God's kingdom. And understanding the Psalms and praying them repetitively as a, as a tool for formation becomes a way for us to begin to align our hearts, to form our hearts in proper modes, in proper ways, into more mature ways of reacting or interacting with God. You see, that self-centered view, I think, is kind of the, it's kind of a hallmark of insecurity both spiritually and practically, to be purely self-centered and to not be others-focused, to not be oriented towards anyone other than yourself is the, the, the general posture of somebody, and speaking as somebody who has some two-year-olds and some four-year-olds, <laughs> the default posture of a child, right? And God wants to grow us up into a kind of maturity that, ta that releases us from the captivity of ourselves and opens us up into the wider world of God's kingdom. And in order to do that, he's given us things like Psalm 77. Psalm 77 wants to invite us into a living and dynamic relationship with God that moves us from a kind of egocentric spirituality into what I would call a kind of theocentric encounter with the living God. Now, the problem is, though, is we don't really want this. We resist it. Because we want a kind of quid pro quo relationship with the creator of the universe. One that says, if I do all the right stuff and I kind of get my ducks in a row, then everything will kind of work out how I want it to. But Psalm 77 pushes us into this more mature vision, this more mature picture of God. In fact, I would argue this is the express purpose of the psalm. And, I, and what I want to do this morning is just walk through it with you, just walk through the psalm in its entirety and kind of show you how this psalm helps us to see that we are to move from this kind of self-centered picture of God into a God-centered like, form of reality and all of the doors that that opens up for us into God's kingdom. So, if you have your Bibles or your phones, I would suggest that you turn to Psalm 77 because we are going to stay almost exclusively in that text this morning. So we'll begin by focusing on those first six verses 
in Psalm 77. And what I want you to notice in those first six verses of Psalm 77 is this level of preoccupation that the, that the psalmist has in those first, first six verses. The psalmist is only praying about him or herself here. I cried, I was in bitterness, I sought the Lord, I meditated, my spirit grew faint, I was too troubled to speak, I thought about the former days. Look at all of those I statements, all of the kind of first person expression of this person's discouragement. And these are all prayers that we've prayed, right? They come very naturally to us. And I'm not saying that they're bad, full stop, to, pray, to cry out to the Lord or to seek the Lord or to be troubled by a circumstance in our lives. I think these are things that God wants us to express to him. And the psalmist does do that. And in that sense, he's he or she is engaged in this process of prayer. And in that sense, it's a beautiful thing. But there is a kind of self-focused, self-centeredness in this passage that leads to a kind of discouragement by the psalmist. The language is addressed to God, but it's not really about God. It can, in a sense, be seen as a kind of picture of narcissism. And I can tell you personally, like I've prayed these prayers and the self-centeredness of them always kind of leads to what happens in the next verses of Psalm 77, in verses 7 through 9. Here, I'll just read them for you. So he starts out with all these I statements, and then he goes into this in verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? You see, what I want you to see here is that this writer's self-concern has led him to a place of discouragement. When all we can see is our own concern, we lose sight of what God is actually capable of in our lives. In verse 1 through 6, the, the self-concern leads to a kind of discouragement or despondency in verses 7 through 9, where the, water act, where, the, excuse me, where the writer actually begins to call into question God's essential character. Because God has not come through in the way that the writer has wanted this God to come through. Specifically, the writer questions three fundamental Jewish understandings of God's character, his nature. In verse 7, he questions his loyalty. In verse 9, he questions his graciousness. And in verse 8, he questions the fundamental core uh, characteristic of God in the Hebrew mind, which is his hesed, or his unfailing love, his covenantal love, his faithfulness. Within the context of like a marriage, this would be like, is this spouse faithful to me? This is what the writer is questioning. The writer is questioning the very nature of the character of God here because from his focused perspective, God has not held up his end of the bargain. And how many of us have been in that space, right? God has not bent to my will and I'm mad about it. And so the writer is thrown into a kind of questioning that could even be called a crisis of faith, a kind of deconstruction. The writer, Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar, 
He's from Nebraska. He sounds German, but he's not. He says this about this passage. He says, the questions posed, these questions pose the most urgent faith issues. They ask about the very character of God, but they are questions that emerge out of an overriding self-concern. They appear to ask about God's faithfulness, but they really ask, what about me? What about me? You see, verse 7 and 9 lead to this other pivotal verse in this passage of Scripture. The verse where everything shifts. Because the psalm doesn't just stop in that place of like overt self-concern or self-centeredness. Now, the transition verse of this passage is in verse 10. And it's, it's notoriously hard to translate. Most translations of this passage don't do a very good job. The best translation of verse 10 that I found was in the New English Bible, which overall is not a very good translation of the Bible. But for this passage, it does a good job. And here's the, trans, the transition verse of Psalm 77. And here's what he says in verse 10. Has his right hand, I said, lost its grip? Does it hang powerless, the arm of the Most High? So he ends, he transitions with this final question. Does his strong right hand, has it lost its authority? Is God not strong enough to change this situation? Have you ever been there, right? Where is God? Where is his strong right hand? Does he need to do some curls, right? Is this where we're at? The writer is questioning God. Why isn't God doing what I want him to do? What's going on? But it is this question, almost like his like exasperated question from the psalmist, that breaks the dam of the psalmist's self-centeredness and is the turning point in this psalm. Because the psalmist has run up against the unsettling reality that a simple faith that says, as long as I do the right stuff or pray the right prayers or go to church or whatever it is, that God will do what I want him to do. He's run up against that wall. And all of us, if we're in this journey of following Jesus for long enough, will run up against that wall. Someone you love will get sick. Something truly bad will happen. Something that just throws you, you'll lose a job. You'll get in a car accident at the exact wrong moment. Your kid will throw up on your, in your bed the night before you have the biggest meeting of your life, right? These are the types of things that bring us to the, like, this point of questioning of God's goodness. And there is this natural self-centeredness that rises up out of our hearts in that moment and goes, God, where are you? What is this? What could possibly be going wrong? And this is the point at which the psalmist is at this morning. He runs into the wall of his own self-centeredness and the fact that God doesn't seem to be bending to his will in the way that he thinks that he should. You see, the, this verse could be read as the writer losing faith, right? That's ah, not going to work. Let's just jettison the whole thing. But what happens is that when he hits this wall, he's forced to see what's actually going on and his focus on self transitions into a kind of focus on God. And maybe even more scary than that, 
He shifts away from a simple understanding of God, the quid pro quo God, to a more mature, a more complex view of God's sovereignty. You see, God cannot be predicted. I'm sorry to tell you this. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be coerced. His ways are infinitely higher than ours. And God is good, but he is not limited, and he is not constrained by our desires or the way we see the world. Not at all. And when we pray only along the lines of our own agenda, we will miss the wildness and the unpredictability and the wonder of this God every single time. We are so busy looking at our shoes and complaining about our wills not being done in the world that we miss out on the mystery and the wildness and the unpredictability of a God like this. In Psalm 77, this writer is coming to terms with that reality, and I think as we pray along with the writer being invited into that ourselves. Because in verse 11, everything changes. And the psalmist stops with the I language and begins to speak almost explosively about God in God's self. And again, Walter Brueggemann captures the beauty of this transition when he says, the dramatic move concerns the abandonment of self as the primary agenda for the thou who is out beyond us in freedom. I just want to drop a pin right there. The dramatic move concerns the abandonment of the self as the primary agenda for the thou that is out beyond us in freedom. You see, our own self-concern and self-centeredness becomes like a really small box that we put ourselves in. When all we can see is two inches in front of our face, when we're locked in a glass case of emotion, we become people who cannot see the freedom that is out in front of us in God's kingdom. You see, God's kingdom is this utterly beautiful and utterly free thing that we are freely invited into, but when we can't get out of our own way and it's our own self-concern all the time that's right here and we can't see it, well, the wildness and the beauty of this life in the kingdom of God just becomes this thing that we can't participate in. You see, there's a trust that's required here for us in order to walk with Jesus in the kingdom. To be freed up from my own self-concern and kind of abandon myself to the thou, to the God who is out in front of me, in freedom, inviting me on this journey that is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, I'll just tell you, is never in danger. God's kingdom is never in doubt. Your circumstances might be. My bishop says this to me all the time, to us, to our diocese. The kingdom of God is never in doubt. It is always secure. But it is wild and it is free and it is out there and it is inviting us into that powerful journey. And when we have the, the courage and the vision to follow God in this way, to get out of our own ways, and to follow this God on this wild experience that is the kingdom of God, well then, we are inviting it to something that is so much more grand 
and so much more beautiful and so much more scary than our own, the own box of our own lives that we often put ourselves in. We spend so much time trying to get God to work on our problems that so very often we miss the fact that he is trying to get us to work on his and that that is where our life is truly found. And for the rest of this psalm, the writer is telling himself, reminding himself of all the ways in which God has always been out in front of his people. He begins by telling himself the story of God's work to lead his people out of captivity. He's just reminding himself of the stories again. And here's the important part. In this shift in language, the psalm moves from eyes to use. The writer moves from the place of self-saturation to a kind of God-saturation. The, the psalmist was saturated with his own perspective, but through the course of the psalm, he moves to a place of God-saturation. He takes a completely different perspective, knowing that all we, all we need does lie not in our own perception, not in our own thoughts, not even in our own emotions, but in this place of a kind of satisfaction in God's goodness, knowing that all we need is Him. Now, one caveat. I think listening to our emotions is good, paying attention. I, I'm not arguing for a kind of spiritual bypassing here where we deny everything that's true in our lives and just claim everything as being perfect and beautiful. No but it is about trust. And it is about a willingness to look beyond our circumstances and to trust a God who we know is always at work. Living in this dynamic of relationship with God rather than in this relationship with God where he's always just working on my behalf. To die to our own desires and to become alive to the possibilities that we are of great value to God and that he is working and that he does care, but that his working is out beyond us in freedom and we need to join him in that place. And just in case you were wondering, Jesus says this stuff all the time. He says things like, take up your cross and follow me or you must die to yourself, right? Or don't worry about your life or what you will eat or drink. And all that language can sound kind of intense to us or scary or a little, I don't know, just esoteric, right? It's just kind of spiritual mumbo jumbo. But I think it's the core of this idea that unless we die to ourselves or to our self-centered, like the id, right? The ego or the superego, until we die to that reality, we'll never understand God in the way that God is inviting us to understand him. Until we die to our own immature, narcissistic faith, we will never be able to wake up to the power of what God wants to do in and around us. In some sense, in order to follow Jesus, we need to walk away from an immature religion, understanding that God is not the guarantor, the guarantor of our plans or our purposes, and instead see God as a free being who is out in front of us, calling us away from our attention to ourselves and towards attention to the beauty of what he is doing to build his kingdom in and through our lives. 
Jesus was always trying to get his disciples to see beyond themselves, to get their eyes on the kingdom. And truly, this is what the psalmist is trying to do too. And so Psalm 77 and many other psalms as well are beautiful, I'll say the word tools, that allow us to practice through prayer what it means to have a proper theological or kingdom alignment. It allows us to align our hearts and our minds well in the kingdom of God. That's why historically Christians have always prayed the Psalms every day. Because there's this means, this, there's, they're this aid, they're this tool that allows us to be God's people in the world. And here's my last thing this morning. We will never experience the beauty and the grandeur and the wonder of this God while we are inordinately obsessed with ourselves. Self-centered faith never leads to a transcendent spiritual union with, God, with the God of the universe. The two things are just antithetical. One last story. Did any, anybody familiar with Blaise Pascal? Right? Do you know who that guy is? He did some math stuff in the 1600s. But Pascal lived the majority of his life as a kind of enlightenment thinker, math person, didn't give, I think he was raised Catholic, but he didn't give a lot of credence to the Christian faith. But his father died and his sister joined a monastery. And one evening in November, uh, he had a spiritual experience. And from the point of this like kind of mystical spiritual experience, he moves on in his life to become almost solely a kind of philosophical spiritual writer. He doesn't go back into the math and science stuff quite so much. But we have his own writing of what this experience was like, I think on a, on a late November evening as it was getting dark. This is what he wrote in his own hand, his, his, his experience of this mystical experience with God. God of Abraham... God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers or of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have departed from him. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water. My God, will you leave me? Question mark. Sounds a little bit like the psalm there, right? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, the one that you sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I have left him. I fled him renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept secretly by the ways taught in the gospel, securely. Renunciation, total and sweet. Complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. Pascal said this, it was said, he said later that it was a two-hour uh, mystical experience that he had. And this, uh, this recollection of that mystical experience was not discovered until after Pascal's death. 
because he had it sewn into the breast pocket of his jacket to keep over his heart for the whole of his life. And so he carried it with him everywhere he went as a reminder. You see, our immature experience of God will never lead us to the transcendent. It just won't. But a kind of giving up of our own self-perception and a a willingness to follow God as our director, to trust in the person of Jesus for our salvation, yes, but also for a fullness of life that can only be found in him, is, I believe, the goal of the human life. And as we follow Jesus in this way, we can begin to step in and experience the abundant life that I believe Jesus promises each and every one of us. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be led into a time of communion. Father, I love you. We love you. And we pray that this day you would inspire in our hearts, that you would inspire in our hearts this true and deep desire to be a people who don't think solely about our own ends or our own purposes or even our own lives, but that we would willingly and maybe even recklessly give ourselves over to you, that you would be the guarantor, the guarantor and the leader of our souls and our lives, that we would see the freedom that is out before us in God's kingdom and that we would walk, no run towards that freedom in such a way as that we would be given up into your good world. Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide us today and in the future? And would you help us to experience you in the fullness of your love and of your grace? And we pray it all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.